Amen. So we've been looking at six qualities of an effective witness for Christ. Uh, we're obviously going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we're taking a kind of a, a more in-depth look at verses 1 through 12 of, of, um, of, of chapter 2. And we notice that there are, that there are six, six qualities that we've been, we've been going over together. The first one was boldness. That's the first one we looked at. The second one was sincerity. We looked at transparency last week. And we're going to look at um, industriousness and encouragement over the next couple. But this week, we're looking at um, this thing that we're calling being other-centered, being other-centered. Now, there are lots of, there's lots of deception within the Christian world. There are lots of people who claim to be Christians who aren't really Christians, and uh, they're good at mimicking. They're good at mimicking what the Christian life looks like. They know the words. They know how to behave. Uh, we know that this is nothing new. This is something that Jesus dealt with. Uh, remember, uh, one, of, one of the members of Jesus' own band, Judas, was a deceiver. And in fact, none of the other disciples suspected that he would betray Jesus um, on that night before he was crucified. No one, no one thought that he was an imposter. And for the most part, many of these qualities that we're looking at are ones that can be mimicked. They're ones that can be imitated. Boldness and sincerity to some degree. Transparency to some degree. Industriousness, of course, we can mimic that and it not be real. And we can encourage people, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's real. But one thing that is that is probably the most difficult out of these six things to mimic is what we're looking at today, and that is other-centeredness. In fact, um, the reality is, is that if, if we are to live other-centered lives in the way that the Bible speaks of it, we need to be supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit. It, it requires a new nature. It requires being born of God's Spirit, being born again. There's a story of a 23-year-old who was hired to be an adjunct composition teacher at Brooklyn College, and, and uh, she was supposed to teach at night. And apparently at Brooklyn College at night, it's full of lots, of lots of older students and students from other countries. And so she was feeling pretty intimidated one night as she stepped into the classroom, and everyone in the room was talking. This was the first night of class, and Immediately as she scanned the room, she realized that she was the youngest one there. She even heard whispers from people. She looks like she's 16. Then she made her way quietly over to the desk in the front of the room, and no one seemed to notice. And then she tried to get their attention, but she couldn't. And then finally she raised her voice. She got the attention of the room, and everyone quieted down. But once they saw her, they could see, she could see rolling eyes and people thinking, oh, please, she's going to teach us something. So she gave them an assignment. She had them pull out a piece of paper. And on one side of the piece of paper, she told them to write exactly how they were feeling at that moment. She asked them to be brutally honest. Tell us exactly what's going on. And tell me what's going on in your mind. And so... Uh, she said uh, smiles came on people's faces and pens started moving and people started writing. And then she asked them to turn over the piece of paper. 
Then she asked them to write how they thought she was feeling at that moment. And this is what, this is what she said at, at the end of that experiment. As soon as they had to think about me as a person with feelings, with insecurities, it all shifted. If they were bored, I was nervous. If they didn't want to be there, I was pressured to make them interested. If they didn't think I looked old enough or experienced enough to do the job, I had to prove to them I was qualified. They quickly realized that as bad as they had it, I had a lot worse. I was not the enemy. I was just standing on the other side of the room. Have you ever been there? Been in a situation like that where you felt like you were all alone and you were on your own and that nobody in the world understood what you were going through? Well, I think that that's the way a lot of people feel and uh, this is an opportunity for us to be the church in other people's lives when we, when we uh, live as the Apostle Paul did in other-centered life. And as we're, as we're going through this together, we need to remember that these qualities, these six qualities that, that we see that are evident in Paul's life, these, these believers, they mimicked it. And so this church became a church that impacted all kinds of churches throughout the regions, throughout the region and, and their part of the world by living out these, these same things. They became a pattern, as we talked about a few weeks ago, for the other churches. And so we're looking at qualities that were evident in Paul's life that he learned from the Lord that became pattern for the churches that followed him, and particularly this church and particularly our church. We want to we have the same kind of pattern in our interactions with one another that we notice that the that the uh, apostle had in his interactions with this church and they had in their interactions with other churches. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that only, only God can empower us to be other-centered. Only God can empower us to be other-centered. And there are two fundamental characteristics that Paul brings up about this way of life. Number one, it is gentle. It is gentle. He begins by saying, and, and again, we're kind, of, we're kind of putting the end of verse 6 along with verse 7. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Paul begins by mentioning what his status was, what his position was, what his office was. He was, a, he was an apostle. He was an apostle. And a, an apostle literally means to be a sent one. He was... He was an ambassador. He was an envoy. He was an emissary for God. And it, it corresponds to a, a Jewish office called a shaliak, a shaliak. And um, uh, a shaliak, there's, there's an ancient document called the Mishnah that the, that the Jewish people used as kind of a guide for their lives. And in the, in the Mishnah, it describes a shaliak as, as uh, the one sent by a man is as the man himself. The one sent by a man is as the man himself. And his point in saying this was that Paul could have made all kinds of demands of the Thessalonian believers because he was God's emissary. He was God's envoy. He was God's apostle. He then had all of the the rights that would pertain to an office like that. But Paul understood something. He understood that he also represented God. 
And as a result of that, he was willing to put his, his rights to the side in order to serve them. There's, um, there's a driving school that I read about this week in, in Maine. And this, this particular driving school um, ha- uses... Now, when you went to driving school, whether you were in your high school, where I, where I went to high school in Illinois, our high schools actually did driver, driver's ed. And, and our high school actually had cars. And our teachers were the ones we went out, were our instructors when we went out on the road. Here, you have to pay a driving school. Now, um, the, the cars that we had were old cars. And from, from what I see around here, most of the driving school cars are very safe, very slow cars. And that makes sense if you're a driving instructor. You want to have a, you want a very safe, very uh, slow car. But there's one driving school in Maine where they, they actually use Mustangs. They usually, they actually use Mustangs. I, I, I pity the, pity the person who's the, who's on the, 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 the driving instructor in that situation, but the, they do. And um, on one side, oh, there, there's two signs in the back of, a, of the car, and the one sign has the name of the, of the, of the company. That's, that's the driving school company. And the other sign says, drive this car. And, uh, and there's, I guess, a couple of reasons for that. One is because the, the school represents the car, right? So you see the car driving down the road. You, you, have, uh, you have the name of the school on the, on the back of the car. It has its sign there. And immediately when you're on the road, you see that it's a student in driving school. You understand what it's all about. But the owners of that driving school also understand that the car represents a school, right? Drive this car. If you have the choice, maybe if you're a teenager, between going and learning how to drive with an old slow car or learning how to drive with a Mustang, which one might you choose? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that didn't take long. Yeah, you choose the, the Mustang. You see, the, the, the car also represents the school. Well, Paul understood that he represented Christ. We need to understand that we represent Christ. But on the other hand... Not only did Paul represent Christ, but he represented Christ in the sense that that he gave people a picture of what Christ was like. That he understood that that he wanted to live in such a way that, that Christ would be attractive to other people. And so therefore he was willing to lay down his rights as an apostle in order to serve them, in order to love them. We notice here that uh, it says that instead of being demanding as an apostle, he says he was gentle. Now scholars, maybe you can look in the margin of your Bible, you will see scholars are split on, the tr- on how it should be translated. I mean, right down the middle. Should this be translated as gentle, or should it be translated as babies or infants? The NIV translates it differently. They take the other Viewpoint, they translated, instead we were like young children among you. Now, it really doesn't matter whether we translate it gentle or if we translate it as infants or babies or young children. The point is, is that Paul, as an apostle of Christ, was not going to use his authority and use his position to kick anybody around. That just wasn't, that wasn't the way he was going to go about his ministry to these people. And so we ask a question, what, is, what does a gentle ministry look like? What does a gentle life look like? If, particularly if, if we want to reach out to our, maybe our lost friends and, 
and uh, relatives, maybe if we want to love each other in an appropriate way, even within the body of Christ, what does it look like to be gentle? Well, we can, we can, take a, we can, we can say a few things. Number one, number one, it means that we're not high maintenance. It means we're not high maintenance. It means that we're not demanding. Paul, Paul wasn't demanding. He wasn't constantly uh, going and, and using his position to, to get more and more and more. No, Paul, Paul was, a, was a servant, and that, that leads to our second one. Secondly, the gentle person is servant-hearted. Their whole approach is to give to others, and that must be our whole approach. It is to give to others. Imagine if we go into a situation where, where we, you know, into a relationship where our thought isn't, what can I take from this relationship, but, but actually, what can I give to this relationship? What can I contribute to this relationship? It'll be completely different. Third, to be gentle means to be careful with people who are caught in sin. To be careful with people who are caught in sin. Notice what Galatians 6.1 says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. By the way, that's a different word for gentle than the one we have in front of us. In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Right? So when we're dealing with someone who is caught in sin, we need to deal with them gently. Understanding that we too are prone to the same kind of temptation. That's the that's beautiful thing we know about the church. The church is for broken people. And we're here to, to walk with one another through the course of this life. Be gentle with one another. And that's a picture of other-centeredness. Not enforcing our, life, our, our rights to take what we, we can or to, or to uh, point our finger uh, right at people. Uh, our, our desire is to see people restored and, and to do that gently. It doesn't mean that we have to compromise, though, as Christians. In fact, it means that we shouldn't compromise as Christians. There's one, there was one um, president who had an aide who was with him all the way through his political career. He knew this aide. This aide helped him when he first launched his first campaign, and this aide followed him almost all the way through his presidency. And, uh, and, and once this aide was, was brought aside, probably no one knew Ronald Reagan. This was Ronald Reagan. I guess I'm telling you now. Nobody knew Ronald Reagan better than, than Mike Deaver. Okay, that's who it was. Mike Deaver was Ronald Reagan. And, uh, and so um, he was asked to describe Reagan. He said, you know, Reagan was a nice guy. He was mushy. He was squishy. He was like a marshmallow on the outside. Nice, great sense of humor. Uh, he was, he was uh, a gentleman to a fault. And, uh, and he was squishy. Just put it that way. <laughs> He's not alive, so he can't get mad at me for saying that. But, um, but he said, if you, if you were to rear back and punch him, you'd meet a steel beam. You'd meet a steel beam of conviction. And, and I think in a lot of ways, that describes the, the healthy Christian life. That we're gentle, that we're gracious, that we're loving, that we're merciful. The trans, that's, a, that's, that's what this kind of life is, another centered life. But on the other hand, we have our conviction. And if, and if somebody is to pull back and test that conviction, we're not going to be moved. Because we stand on the, on the truth of God's word. And so we have that, that steel beam of God's conviction running through us, even if there's that mushy, uh, squishy, uh, gentle uh, exterior, in a sense, that we have. That's the kind of life that God calls us to live. 
Well, um, Paul illustrates this by comparing himself to a mother. By comparing himself to a mother. He says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, surprisingly for us, it wasn't as common as we might think for women in the ancient world to nurse their own babies. Uh, we would assume just because it's, that seems to be the common thing in our day that it would be at all times in all cultures, but that isn't the case. In fact, there's one ancient document. This is what it says. It says a father-in-law or a mother-in-law demands, this is an, we don't know if it's a father-in-law or a mother-in-law, but a father-in-law or a mother-in-law demands the infant must have a wet nurse because I do not permit my daughter-in-law to suckle him. So it was very, very common for people in the ancient world to have a wet nurse. And that wet nurse was not only in charge of feeding the child, but also in charge of that child's education and taking care of the child. And very often a close bond would develop between that child and the, and the uh, wet nurse. But what Paul is saying here is, is very different. He uses the same word, nursing mother, wet nurse, but he uses it personally. And so he says, he says, in contrast to that, in contrast to having a hired hand come in and feed the child and take care of the child and educate the child, he says, he says, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, he compares himself to that. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying he's not a hired hand. He's like the mother who has the child, who feeds the child herself, who educates the child herself, who takes care of the child herself. There's a bond, there's a relationship that a mother and a child can have that no third party can have, no matter how close that person might be. And Paul's saying that I am like that, that mother who says, nope, nope, I'm not going to have someone else feed my child. I'm not going to have someone else educate my child. I'm not going to have someone else take care of my child. I'm going to do that myself. So we have this, this picture of him and his love, this self-giving love that we see in his life for, for uh, those that God had given him to serve. Second thing we notice, the first one is um, it, it is gentle. The second thing is it's, it's defined by sacrificial love, defined by sacrificial love. This is the kind of love where we do what's best for others, even when it comes at our own expense. We read in verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we are ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Have you ever rushed to judgment against somebody else? Sometimes and in, in, uh, revealed it, your own selfish heart. Remember that happened to me uh, many times. But uh, one particular time, when, believe it or not, I used to be a cross-country coach. And uh, I was no great runner, and I was no great coach. I was just available. There's some of you who are coaches like that, you understand. We have some real coaches here that uh, they kind of roll their eyes at that. But that's who I was. I was, uh, I was just kind of like available, and, and, I, and I did it. But I remember one of the things that, that used to frustrate me all the time was we had a certain group of kids that always pretended to be hurt. Oh, coach, I can't run today, they'd point at their hip. Oh, coach, I can't run today, they'd point at their knee. And I was probably pretty, most of the time, say, okay, can you walk? Can you, can you give us something today? 
And, and sometimes it'd be like, okay, just sit on that rock for the next two hours till practice is over. I don't know what to do. But every day, and at the school I did this, every kid was required to do a sport. So uh, most of the kids weren't doing it because they wanted to. Most of the kids were doing it because they had to. So I remember one day, I just was fed up. I'd been doing this, I don't know how many years. I was fed up. These kids are always making stuff up. And then there was one kid who uh, came up to me, and he never really ever complained of being hurt. He was, he's not what you would call like a, a champion runner, but at least he would, he would go through the motions. But one day, and, and, and he was part of the friend group of the kids that were always trying to get out of it. So one day he walked up to me and he said, Coach, um, uh, I'm not feeling well today. And I was just about ready to lay into him. You know, if you just, if you just get out there and run, maybe you'll feel better as you start running. I was, I was, I was just going to say, hey, just do it anyway. Just come on, let's go. What have you got? And then all of a sudden, just right before the words came out of my mouth, blood started coming out of his nose. And I said, you know what? Maybe you ought to sit on a rock for a while. And in fact, maybe you should go home now and, and then come back whenever you're feeling better. But I had this, I had this, um, I had this great conviction that came over me because immediately I jumped to conclusions about why this kid was, was saying that he couldn't run that day when I really didn't know. So often we do this with other people. And we typically don't do that as much with people that we love with all of our heart. Paul points out here that he, he says he is affectionately desirous of the Thessalonians. It's, it's actually one word that makes up these two words that are translated into English. Um, the NIV 84 translates it, uh, we loved you so much. That's, that's very telling, isn't it? That's the way they translated this word. This word is a hard word to translate because this is the only time it's used in the whole New Testament. Now, it's present tense, so, so if we were to just kind of tweak the NIV's translation a little bit, we love you so much. Think about how Paul is pouring out his heart for these, these believers who he has served all of his life. He has this, this, this deep affection. He has this deep love for them. And the fact that it's in the present tense means it's ongoing, it's constant, it's never ending, it's never ceasing. This is the kind of love that he has for those in the body of Christ. So getting to the bottom of the meaning of this word, since it's so rare, it's not even just rare in the New Testament. Again, it's the only use of it. But it is rare in, in, the, in the ancient world. But this gives us a little bit of a window into what Paul meant by this. This is the way he felt about other believers. This is the way he felt about other Christians. This is the way God wants us to feel about other believers, how God wants us to feel about other Christians. There was an inscription. There was an inscription and uh, it was a funeral inscription, and and in this funeral description, or in this in this in this description that was from a funeral, it described how um, you know I think I, I signaled the wrong one. That's okay. It described how a how a um, a parent, actually two parents, a father and a mother, felt about their deceased son. We loved you so much. We love you so much. This is the kind of longing that the Apostle Paul has for the Christians in Thessalonica. This is, 
the kind of longing that God calls us to have for one another, but it can only happen when, it's, when we have an other-centered love for other people. Those of you who have children or have someone close in your life or maybe a niece or a nephew, somebody that, that, is, that is so close to you, you understand the nature of this other-centered love. You know that you would give up your life in a heartbeat for that person. Well, God wants us to think about one another within the body of Christ in the same way. We see this example in Paul's life. We notice here what he was willing to do, how he gave evidence to that. Number one, they were willing to share the gospel of God. We notice that in verse 8. Last week we talked about how preachers in the ancient world who had all kinds of ideas, not just Christian preachers, but preachers in the ancient world with all kinds of ideas would travel from city to city, and one of their main goals would be to go into a city, capture people's imagination and attention with their words, and then fleece them and then leave. But in Paul's case, he was bivocational. He went there to serve them. He went there, as he says, to share the gospel of God. I have a friend who's in ministry, and he said one of the things that has become most frustrating to him as he travels around, and this friend is no longer in ministry, he's retired, as he travels around from place to place to place, he said, he said nobody seems to be preaching the gospel anymore. Nobody seems to be preaching the gospel anymore. In fact, this, this particular person, what sent him into retirement was um, uh, on uh, one week, uh, the leadership of the church came to him and said, you know... We're kind, of, we're kind of tired of, of hearing the gospel all the time. And by the way, the gospel is the, is, the, is, the, is the most glorious message that we could ever proclaim. The gospel is the, is the simple, simple story that we were, we were lost and dead in our trespasses and sins. We, we, we sinned against God. We rebelled against God. As a result of that, we were under his wrath. And the only way that we can be rescued from his wrath is if God sent a savior for us, his son. God sent his very own son to die in our place. That through him, through faith in him, we might have eternal life. If you believe that, if you you repent from your sin, you turn from your sin, and you believe that, your sin will be washed away, you'll be given new life, you'll be transformed, uh, you will not be what you were. So the folks in the church came to him and said, you know what, we're tired of hearing that message. We want you to tell us about how to manage our finances. We want you to tell us how to raise our kids. But we don't want to hear the gospel anymore. You know what he said? He said, you've got the wrong man, and he resigned, and that was the end of his ministry, and he left ministry. He was, he was done. We don't hear the gospel anymore like we once did in churches. Many churches, many churches that once proclaimed the gospel, like congregational churches, think about uh, when, the, when the Puritans came here, Puritans came here 400 years ago. You know why they wanted to come here? Why they wanted to start all these congregational churches? so that they could proclaim the gospel. That's why these congregational churches were started. You know how many congregational churches around us have rejected the gospel now? Probably 80, 90% of them. They, they, they don't just ignore the gospel, they reject the gospel. That, that is a disgrace. Then we have churches that are evangelical churches that are built on the gospel but we never talk about the gospel. We talk about other things, and we ask the question, why is the church in America in a mess? I'll tell you why. It's because the gospel isn't central 
to our message anymore. It, it, the gospel is a supernatural thing. It's a God-given thing that changes, radically changes every life. And, and the reason why we have every problem, you know why it is? Because human beings have been divorced from God. And you know what the solution to every problem is? It's reconciliation with God. And you know how we, we experience that? You know how we hear about it? We need to hear somebody share the gospel with us. And when we hear someone share the gospel with us, God, through his Holy Spirit, works to convict our hearts. He regenerates us. He makes us new. We turn from our sin. We, we believe in faith upon what he has done, and we live, we live transformed lives as a result of it. They're, they're, the gospel, though, isn't just the entry point into the Christian life. The, the, the gospel is the, the, the defining point of the, of the Christian life. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. When we come to a point where we find ourselves self-righteous, maybe looking down on another person, maybe, uh, maybe holding some person's sin over their head, what do we need to do? We need to remind ourselves of the gospel. We need to remind ourselves of the fact that God didn't hold our sin over our head and God forgave us this much. I can forgive that person this much, right? We need to remind ourselves of the gospel when we feel overcome by our sin. Maybe in those days where it's the opposite of feeling self-righteous. Maybe it's in those days where we're reminded of something that we did in our past. And maybe it's one of those things that we did in our past that we have confessed to the Lord a million times over again, over and over and over again. And somehow we think that, that it's, it's still there. I want you to know we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves that that sin is gone. It's been covered over. Jesus is taken taking it away. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. You see, the gospel isn't just for the unbeliever. The gospel is for the believer. And, and Paul says that his great act of love was sharing the gospel with them, with these Thessalonian believers. And it is the great gift that we give to everyone in our life. It is something that we must remember to keep front and center, not just on the day that we're converted, not just on the day when we come to know Christ, but every single day of our lives that we live as people with gra in grace-filled lives. This is, this is the gospel. This is, this is what Paul shared, and it's because of his great love for them he shared it at a great expense. Paul suffered because he went to the city to share the gospel, but once God changed their hearts, they were so grateful to him for all that he had done, so grateful to him and to the Lord that they went out, they mimicked him, and went to other churches, so, so much so that when Paul went to certain places, he found out they had beat him there. But not only that, but he... He said that he, and he's speaking of him and Silas, maybe Timothy, it finished in their desire to share their own selves, their own selves. The word there for selves is an interesting word. It means souls. It means souls. He shared his very own being, like this illustration he gave of the mother, sharing of herself with her child. Uh, there's nothing more selfless than what you see in that. And Paul compares himself to that. And, and God calls us to be that, that same kind of uh, a person in other people's lives. Um, Paul's ministry may be contra contrasted with Jonah's. Think about Jonah. Many, how many of you know the story of Jonah? We, we know Jonah and the big fish, right? So, um, so Jonah's told to go to a place called Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. The Assyrians maybe were the most barbaric superpower that the world has ever seen. 
Uh, if you ever, if you just were curious, intellectually curious about them, there's a thing called Sennacherib's Prism. Sennacherib is mentioned in the Bible. He's a, a Syrian king. And you can go, you can look it up, you can find it on the internet, Sennacherib's Prism, where he goes, Prism, P-R-I-S-M, where he goes through and he, and he kind of details all of the atrocities he committed against other cities and other people groups. And, um, and God told Jonah that he wanted him to go to Nineveh to preach a message of redemption. Well, Jonah didn't want to do that. He took a boat, went the opposite direction. And, um, and then God sent a great storm. And Jonah had a choice. Was he going to go where God wanted him to go or was he going to die? He said, I want to die. Throw me in the water. Throw me in the water and all this will stop. And uh, what did God do? God sent him a fish. He was caught by a big fish. You know, um, we hear lots of stories about men ca- catching fish, but we don't hear too many stories about fish catching men, right? The, the fish vomited him up on the ground. And, and by the way, if you read that, uh, this, this vomiting is kind of, it's, it's evidence of God's dis- disgust for Jonah. Uh, he's vomited up, and God says, okay, I want you to go up to Nineveh. So Jonah goes. Notice this. We have this from the story, Jonah 3, 3 through 5. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three, three days journey in breath. Okay, so three days journey in breath. So if he was to go and proclaim the gospel in Nineveh, how long would it take him approximately? Take him three days to do it, right? Then we go on in the story. And by the way, what was his message supposed to be? One of redemption. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. That word there for began means that he went up to the city, most likely. There's a good possibility that Jonah didn't even enter into the city. He went up to the city. Instead of going for three days, right? Proclaiming redemption. What did he do in this very short moment of, of, of going through the motions of obedience and he called out yet Nineveh yet in 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown is there any message of redemption there there is no message of redemption he doesn't do it to the degree that God wants him to do it he is going through the motions and this is the picture of 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 someone who doesn't really care about the people that God sent him to go to when we look at Paul's life, we look at something totally different than that, don't we? Someone who, who was affectionate for them, who loved them, who loved them so much, like a, like a parent who's lost a child when he was apart from them. He loved them so much. He ached for them. He brought them the gospel. He proclaimed the message. He cared for them. It's other-centered. Well, how do we become other-centered? Well, first of all, God has to do it. We have to be regenerated to be made other-centered in the way that the Bible calls us to be other-centered. But, uh, but I'd like to just uh, give some suggestions. Number one, ask God to reveal any blind spots toward others in your heart. Ask God to reveal any blind spots toward others in your heart. I researched other-centeredness. Just went online and started doing some checks and see what I could find. And uh, you know what kept coming up? Self-centeredness. Self-absorption. 
found very few things on being other-centered. Do you know why? Because in our flesh, this is impossible. Even the articles that I read were of no help because, because this runs so counter to our nature that we, that, that we cannot do this. God must do this in us. And so, so we, need to, we need to go to God, like, like the psalmist says, Search me, O God, know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of understanding. We need to go to God and ask him to search our heart. Ask questions like this. Do others exist to love and serve me or do I exist to glorify God by loving and serving others? Do I pattern my life around meeting others' needs or do other people pattern their life around meeting my needs? Do I put myself at others' disposal without reservation? Or do I expect other people to do that for me? Let's go back to the great commandment. Jesus said this in the great commandment. Remember some people came and they asked him to say what the greatest commandment was in the Bible. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of us think that uh, loving neighbor is not a, not a hard thing. A lot of us think that it's, uh, well, yeah, I love my neighbor. Of course I love my neighbor. I care for my neighbor. No, no, that's not what Jesus is saying. Love your neighbor as yourself. So the idea is, is as much as we care for ourselves, we need to care for our neighbor. As much as we think of ourselves, we are to think of our neighbor. Do we do that? Uh, when we think about what we spend on ourselves, do we spend that much on our neighbor? No, when, when we think about it through that lens, we realize how selfish we are, and that's the reason why Jesus shared it. It wasn't to, to validate ourselves, it was to demonstrate the fact that we are sinners in need of a Savior. When I think about somebody who's like that, I, there's, there's no person that comes to my mind more than uh, Pastor Ken Nanfeld. I know I mention him a lot, but he made a big impact, not just on me, but on everybody in this church. And, and I think that the, the person that I have known in my life who was closest to loving others as self was him. But you know, one of the things you knew about him, if you knew him at all, you knew that his love for God was giant, gigantic. And, and it was in his relationship with God that his relationship with us flowed out of that. And it's the same thing in our relationships with others. When, when, we, when we have this supreme love for God, as Jesus talks about here, where our hearts have been changed, where we have brought into fellowship and communion with him, that gives us the capacity to love others to, in greater and greater measure. Second thing is this. Do something else for someone else that can't be repaid. Do something, I'll add a word to it. Do something for someone else in secret that can't be repaid. Um, this is exactly what mothers do for children, right? <laughs> uh, could, could we ever repay our mothers for what they did? We don't even remember what they did for us. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 2 through 4. He says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus talks about that with, with prayer, right? 
He says, when you pray, go somewhere secret, not in a place where anybody's going to think highly of you because you're praying. Don't do it in public. Go somewhere secret. Close the door. And I believe that when we close the door to the world, when nobody is there, uh, that, that's, that's what faith is all about, right? We, because we, we know that we're communing with, with Almighty God. We go, we close the door, we go to some secret place. I believe at that moment the doors of heaven are being opened in our prayer life. And in the same way when we, when we uh, 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 are become other-centered, when we decide, okay, I'm going to do something for someone else that can't be repaid. I'm not going to let my left hand know what my right hand is doing. I'm going to keep it, this a secret. I'm gonna, I, I don't want anyone to know it. Only my Father in heaven knows this then we will begin to experience what it means to live an other-centered life. We'll see the kind of life that Jesus lived. In fact, we have this beautiful picture of what Jesus did on the cross. There's no better picture of self-giving love than that. Number three, ask the Lord to teach you how to see things from other people's perspective. Ask the Lord to teach you how to see things from other people's perspective. This is a really hard thing to do. This man named Bernie Goldberg wrote a book called Bias. It's about media bias. And, uh, and he was at the upper echelons of CBS News. And, and a lot, lot, of, lot of folks complain about the, the media being biased. And he said the media is biased. He just said the only problem is, is that most people in the media don't know it. They don't realize that they have a biased perspective. They don't realize that they're not looking at things from another person's point of view. We need to be careful that we're not like that. But we need to learn to look at things from other people's perspective. My little boy um, wanted a pet really badly. So um, we let him, get a, let him get hermit crabs. He's had these hermit crabs for months. He loves those hermit crabs. He takes care of them. Well, my, my, he's, he's not home right now. He can't take care of his hermit crabs. So I had to take care of his hermit crabs, and I've watched what he's done. So um, interestingly, went to put in water in his little dish and food out where he, where the, well, actually there's two of them where, out, where they can eat it. And, um, and you know, it was interesting. Uh, turn off the lights in the room that the hermit crabs were in. But later on, I came back. And uh, there was one little dimly lit light in the room, and all of a sudden, there was a hermit crab that had come out. Lo and behold, came out of the hole. And uh, as soon as the hermit crab saw me, the hermit crab ran away and then burrowed into a hole in the, in the tank that he has for the hermit crab. And I thought to myself, you know, this hermit crab has known us for all these months. This hermit crab has been pampered, spoiled, cared for, loved, fed, everything. And this hermit crab doesn't trust us for one second. But the reality is that that's how hermit crabs think. That hermit crab is acting according to its nature, right? We can understand why the hermit crab is doing what it's doing because that's what hermit crabs do. And so we don't get mad at the hermit crab because it runs away, frustrated with it because we don't get to see it enough, see them enough. Because we understand the perspective in some small regard of a hermit crab. But what if we did that for one another? What if for a second we, we started to think about the way that other people see the world? It doesn't mean we have to change our mind about the way that we believe the world is, or what the Bible teaches. But what if we started seeing things the way that, that other people saw them? Uh, I think that we could, we could learn more to be other-centered in that way. And then finally, number four, start praying for others daily. Start praying 
Brothers Daily, you know, a, a critical tool for your spiritual life is a prayer list. If you don't have a prayer list, get a prayer list. Start praying for people daily. Start writing their names down. You'll start caring about them. They'll share a prayer request for you, with you. You'll write it down, and then you'll be interested in finding out what happened at the end of the day. How did their surgery go? Uh, what took place in their life? How did the conflict with this person that they loved, how did that go through? All of a sudden, we start thinking about other people when we pray for them. Put people on that list that you're frustrated with. You know that when we're, we put frustrated people on our prayer list, sometimes uh, God will change our heart toward that person and, and uh, we'll actually start rooting for them. You see, um, we learn all of this from God. God lived for all eternity in perfect trinity, perfect love, self-giving love. The world itself, Hebrews 1 tells us, is, is a, a gift from the Father to the Son. The Son is the heir of all things, it says. So this world that we're living in, it's a gift from the Father to the Son. It's a picture of God's self-giving love. And, and we are the capstone of that creation that he, he made. We are, the, we are the, the, the gift that God the Father gave God the Son. We see that perfect self-giving love. And once again, we see it best illustrated in the cross. Where Christ came to rescue us from our sin. How the world would change if we began to live that way in relation to one another. Think about uh, this story. I don't know if it's true. It could have been just made up by somebody. And, but let's, let's just look at it and uh, think about it for a second. I think it's instructive. Probably could happen. Supposedly, it's written by uh, Dr. Jim Clark. He wrote, in a, and this looks like a Facebook post, Today, I operated on a little girl. She needed O negative blood. We didn't have any, but her twin brother has O negative blood. I explained to him that it was a matter of life and death. He sat quietly for a moment and then said, said goodbye to his parents. I didn't think anything of it until after we took his blood and he asked, so when will I die? He thought he was giving his life for hers. Thankfully, they'll both be fine. And you know, that's, that's what the Christian life looks like. That's what life in the church looks like. We lay down our life for one another. We lay down our life for one another because Christ laid down his life for us. But we can only live this kind of life if God does a work within us, a work in our heart to change our heart. And the question is, is whether or not you've experienced that, whether you've entered into a relationship with God, whether you know this new life. I'd like you to pray with me. Oh, Father, thank you so much for the gift of eternal life through Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that, uh, that while we were hopeless and we were lost and we were dead in our sin, Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sin, to pay the penalty, to pay the debt that we could not repay. Oh, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never entered into a personal relationship with you, maybe carrying all of that guilt, that weight with them, Father, I pray that they would come to you and lay it at the foot of the cross. Oh, Lord, we know that you wash away every sin. You take away every stain. You make us as white as snow. Father, I pray that they would pray, oh, God, I'm a sinful person. I need you. I am lost in my sin, but you've provided a savior in Christ, and I believe that he died and rose again for me. Take my life and use it as you will. And Father, I pray also that you would be with us as a congregation, as a people, Lord. Teach us to love the way that you loved us, to love the way that, 
that uh, we see this church love the other churches around them. Lord, give us this kind of love because the world so desperately needs it. And Lord, we know that without you, without you, it's impossible to love this way. So we pray, Lord, that you'd conform our minds and our hearts in such a way that we will have the will and the desire to follow you. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, you will notice if, when you came in that there were communion elements. And just want to uh, say a few things about communion. So communion is for believers. Communion is for people who know they have a personal relationship with Jesus. It's very important because of what it signifies. The bread signifies the body of Christ, symbolizes the body of Christ, which was broken for us. And the cup symbolizes the blood of Christ, which was poured out for us. And, um, and so what this table does, when we partake of communion, it signifies that we are in right relationship with God. We've been reconciled to God. But it also does another thing. It signifies that we're in right relationship with each other. So if I've sinned against a brother or sister in Christ, um, what I need to do is I need to leave this here, go and deal with that situation, and then come and partake in communion. Well, maybe you, you, you say that you've done that. Maybe you, you um, had a situation like that, and you went to the person, and they, they refused to listen, and they, they wouldn't accept your heartfelt Apology. Well, then you can't control what they do. But, but God calls us to, to uh, first of all, make those things right. Then we come to the table, and then we enjoy this fellowship together. So it signifies that we're in right relationship with the Lord, and it signifies that we're in right relationship with, with one another, and we celebrate this table until the Lord comes back. And so uh, in that sense, it's a statement of faith. It's a statement of what we believe. It's a statement about what we believe from the past, of what Christ has done for us. Uh, uh, it's a statement about what we believe in the present, that we need to live in right relationship with one another. And it's a statement about the future, that one day we know that we shall see Jesus again. And so this is a profound, profound um, ordinance that the Lord has given us. And so uh, let's, take a, let's take a moment and uh, uh, just, just uh, before we partake in communion and just be reminded that there's a warning that goes along with this. We read it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what we're going to do is just take a moment, silently confess anything that the Lord places on our heart, and then we are going to partake in the Lord's table together. Let's pray.